Welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. Now, you may or may not be listening to this on October 31st. This may be part of your long queue of spooky Halloween listening, or maybe it's November 2nd, and you've just recovered from your Halloween bash. But whatever the case may be, happy, happy Halloween, ghouls and ghosts. (laughs) Our episode today is something very different from our regularly scheduled programming. We will not be sitting down with a director or actor from one of your favorite films, but instead, we're doing the thing that Halloween lends itself to best. We will be in the company of two master horror storytellers to have our spines tingled and our gooses bumped. Our next episode will feature one of horror's heaviest hitting directors, and we have a big one coming up near the end of November that has been months in the making. Now, light some candles and make sure your phone has reception. I miss the days where the killer could just cut the friggin' phone line. And let's get ready to be terrified. (laughs) I'm not good at the scary laugh thing. Someone else couldn't do that. Our first story comes to us from one of the true greats of horror storytelling. The creator of Knife Point Horror, among several other classic genre podcasts. The one and only Soren Narnia. This tale, a blood-curdling little number titled Bloodborne, was written and performed by Soren just for Spill Your Guts. Soren joined us in Season 1 for a chat about his work, so if you haven't heard that episode, well, you ought to fix that. Spill Your Guts is proud to present Bloodborne, written and performed by Soren Narnia. I worked for a year in a blood bank attached to Lyman Hall University. Inventory control, actually. Boring job. Didn't pay much. Lousy hours. One day I got a call from my boss that a single unit of frozen red blood cells was shipping in the next night. It had to be repacked in more dry ice to keep the temperature stable. Then it had to be couriered to a plane headed for Korea to a private recipient. That was kind of rare, but... And once in a while, certain properties in a blood donation are so unique it gets frozen for research or set aside for a very specific reason. My boss mentioned it was a very expensive request paid for by some anonymous person, but that's all he really knew. He said, do not screw it up. Great guy, my boss. I was working alone overnight when it came in. The overnight shift paid an extra dollar an hour box with the RBCs comes in through FedEx. It's nothing unusual except the box was real beaten up. It's just reinforced chipboard. I looked at the time frame and I started the transfer work on the computer right away, but something was very weird. Red blood cells can't be frozen for more than 30 years, but the draw date on the record, the date the blood was originally taken from someone, was November 1931. All the ID info was missing from the record, even the blood type. And it had this note from the university medical director that no matter what anomalies were there in the record or in the bag itself, this stuff had to be moved on to Korea within 12 hours. He even attached a a medical clearance. Urgent need. That MC wiped out about five or six obvious procedure violations with this box. So whatever, I was powerless. My, my plan was to get out another couple of stat orders and then repack the RBCs inside the box in about 15 pounds of new dry ice. Then 
called the courier to run it out to the airport. Be done with it by my break around 2.15 in the morning. The box just sat in the corner of the lab near some others. I was sitting there packing some platelets for the university hospital when I heard this weird kind of creaking. I didn't recognize it. Sort of a papery creaking. I realized it was coming from the box with the RBCs in it. I thought, what the hell is that? What I think happened was that maybe the box hadn't been packed right on the first leg of the trip from Chicago. You have to vent the wrapping around dry ice. If you don't, that's liquid nitrogen. So the pressure inside the outer wrap can build and build. When you put the ice into the pouch, you have to take a pair of scissors and just go stab, 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 like over and over again. It's easy to forget to do, actually. Then, maybe it was a rough plane flight in. The box is down in the hold. Turbulence plays hell with it. So by the time it got to the lab, ticking time bomb. And all of a sudden, the box basically exploded. There was this thwap. And I, I, I felt something shoot past my face. It was a piece of the box. And little bits of dry ice hit my neck, stung like hell. But also, this warm liquid hit me. It hit my cheeks, my neck, my forehead, my ears. The computer monitor behind me broke. The box handle had shot off in the explosion and slammed into the screen. I think I screamed. Not like there was anyone around to hear me. The closest person was way down two hallways in the QC. For a second, I just sat there in shock. Shards of the box everywhere, pieces of dry ice, stuff had gotten knocked over. I had, I had a, a dry ice gash on the back of my hand. Total disaster. And that liquid that had come out was everywhere, too. On the wall behind me, all over the desks, the computers... It was black, almost pure black. I, I, I put my hand to my face and it came away black and wet. I was mystified by what this stuff was. I looked around and there were no icy chunks of, of dark red frozen blood anywhere, even though I found parts of the bag and the tubing. The thing is, anything inside that box couldn't have been warm like this black stuff was, warm and kind of thick. There were 15 pounds of dry ice in the box. Everything should have been virtually frozen. I, I kind of staggered around for a bit. I was trying to regain myself, and I, I was so stunned. It was, it was a minute before it sank into me. Jesus, I got to get this stuff off my face now, and it was on my lips, too. I'd heard horror stories about centrifuges breaking as they spun whole blood and, and showering people with it, getting it into their mouths. I totally freaked out then. I ran to the sink started to splash water on me. My face was stinging from the dry ice. A big chunk of it had hit, hit my shoulder, too, and it really hurt, left a bruise. I collapsed into my chair again when I at least had my face clean, but the black stuff was in my hair still and, and all over my right ear. I had just gotten control of my breathing when I felt <clears throat> this tingling on my forehead. There was still a little liquid there and on my ear, too. It was all rolling downward. It was rolling downward all at once. It went 
It went down the ridge of my nose and over my cheeks and it went down my neck. I felt it moving fast, like it was being vacuumed. And it, it felt like, a, like an insect presence as it, it traversed my flesh, like it had cilia or something. And the, the stuff on the back of my right hand, a big blotch of it, it started to roll off to it, rolled off my hand and onto my lab coat. And I looked down, and all the black blood was skittering toward the same place, the front of my lab coat. It collected there in about four seconds, and then it rolled down, down onto my pant leg and onto my shoes and onto the floor. Every bit of it that had been on any part of me. I looked up, and it was all coming off the walls, too. The stuff on the monitors... And the clock on the wall, it was sliding down, not just with gravity, but with, with, with real uh, propulsion. And, and it left no trace of itself behind. It left the walls completely clean. It pooled on the floor in, in six or seven different places around the lab. It all began to seek out the other pools, all those individual ones crawled across the floor toward each other, toward the center of the room, liquid pools moving on their own, fast, coming together, until there was one big stain in the middle of the lab, two feet wide, black and dull, viscous. I may have screamed again. The stain started to move toward the north door of the lab. It went right for the first opening it could sense. I went after it, but God, it was so fast. It slid under the door. I ran and yanked it open, and the blood was slithering down the hallway. It was going toward the outer exit where the couriers pulled up, outside into the cold and the dark. And I swear there was no way to even get close to it. It was so determined. There was no slime or residue behind it as it went. It was like its own creature with a sensory system and, and an impulse to escape danger. It slid under the outer door. By the time I got there and opened it, it was a quarter of the way across the parking lot. Um, there was a, an embankment and some tall reeds, and that's where the stuff went, almost gliding over the pavement. So smooth, so quiet. I stood there watching it until it disappeared. And long after that, too. I went into the hallway bathroom nearby and I looked at myself in the mirror. There wasn't a hint of the blood on me anymore. Not a hint. Finally, I went back into the lab and I cleaned up a little. It was almost a half hour before I felt calm enough to type an email to my boss. I said that I'd done a visual inspection of the... RBCs, and the bag had failed it. So I marked the bag for discard, and I incinerated it. And the phone rang almost right away. It was him. My email pinging him woke him up at home. He started yelling, how could you do that? Didn't I tell you? Didn't you look at the record? Do you know this was a very important research tool, and someone very wealthy had made such and such an arrangement? Why did you ignore the medical clearance? And I looked around me at the cracked monitor and, and 
all the bits of dry ice it would take me forever to scoop up. And I realized no explanation for all this was ever going to work. And I hung up on it. I wrote a note saying that I was sorry, but I quit, effective immediately. I left it on his desk, and I walked out of there. Never went back, not even to get my last check. It was, uh, it was a pretty long walk to get home, about 25 minutes, all alone, in the cold and the dark. And I kept looking in every shadow for signs of something moving, but nothing ever revealed itself. Our second story tonight, performed by master voiceover actor, Spill Your Guts' own Jason Hill, comes from critically acclaimed horror author Brian Hodge. Brian Hodge is one of those people who always has to be creating something. So far, he's written multiple novels, around 130-plus shorter works, and a proud catalog of full-length collections. Tonight's story, I Was a Teenage Shroom Fiend, originally appeared in the anthology entitled Pop the Clutch. Thrilling tales of rockabilly, monsters, and hot rod horror. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to more of Brian's amazing library of horror. Now, strap in for Brian Hodges' I Was a Teenage Shroom Fiend, performed by the legendary, the iconic, the spellbinding Jason Hill. Nobody meant for the Piggly Wiggly to burn down or many of the rest of what ended up turning to smoking rubble. Not exactly. So let's clear that up right now. You never really see these things getting out of hand until after they do. Up to then, it's all just normal stuff, going about your usual day. Like any other typical late Friday afternoon, me and Maddox, in his old Dodge Coronet that looked like a rocket ship, with huge fins and four taillights poking out like shooting flames, making his rounds as his customers got fortified for their weekends. Sugar Grove was a sleepy little college town, a fact you'd never know from the side we lived on. Cruising from south to north was like going to a whole other town. Once we got there, Maddox would wheel into the park near the campus, next to the big splashing fountain or in the lot by the pond with all the weeping willows around it, or near the brick bathrooms, and, pretty soon, some sleepy-looking guy would amble over. Different guys in each location, but the same long hair to his chest and same stars on his pants or rainbow on his shirt, and the same vacant smile on his face. They looked like they never had a worry in the world, and I found an appeal to that. It had to be more than the drugs, I hoped. I'd have the glove box open, and as often as not, Maddox had a better idea what the customer was after than the customer himself. So, he'd tell me what to fish out. Hey man, give me the baggie with them little green footballs, he'd say. Those were the chloral hydrate gel capsules. Or, that one, with them little tiny ones, whites and yellows and blues. Valium. Or, one with six of the big yellow round ones. Perkadan, the Cadillac of Downers. All that, plus codeine, Darvacet, Darvon, 
Maddox carried it all. He had a guy inside a pharmacy, a part-timer named Jimbo, a year behind me in high school, who did deliveries and things like that. You couldn't steal the good stuff outright. Well, I noticed that. But the system had a weakness ripe for exploiting. The pharmacy supplied two hospitals and several nursing homes, and they were always returning meds that had been prescribed but never used. Most of it could go back into circulation, but there were certain controlled classes of drugs that could not. When those came back, they were supposed to be destroyed, which was Jimbo work. It seemed like a huge waste, but that was the law. So Jimbo would pop them all out of their blister packs into a gallon-sized plastic ice cream tub they kept in the back, and when they got full, it would be time to empty it into the outside dumpster. Only Jimbo got really good at skimming the cream of the keepers. Maddox would exchange the pills for cash. Then we'd rumble along to meet the next customer while I sorted the money and kept the denominations arranged. We didn't get away quite as clean with the last one. A guy with a droopy mustache almost as long as his hair. Hey man, how about those mushrooms I asked for? He curled his fingers over the driver's door. Any luck with the shrooms? I'm working on it. Got a line on a source a couple nights ago. Maddox gave the fingers a look as dirty as their nails. Don't make me peel those off. The guy backed away, looking nine kinds of surprised, like he didn't even know what his fingers had been up to. As we drove away, he was all apologies, and looked that way in the mirror for as long as I could see him. Maddox grumbled and shook his head. Holy Jesus, I hate hippies. And why do you sell to them? Because their money spends better than they smell, and none of them ever tried to rip me off. He looked across at me, a good half acre of front seat between us. Bikers now, they're the ones you have to watch out for. They're not the ones buying downers either. They're speed freaks. You roll up to do business with a biker whose pupils are already down to black pinholes and there's trouble brewing already. Ah. Um, then what are you complaining about the hippies for? Next to that, they don't seem so bad. Maddox had to grouse a little more, then relented. They're not, I guess. Bath might go a long way toward raising my opinion with most of them, though. Well, girls are cute. Them too? Maddox uncorked his cigarette from the corner of his mouth and stuck it by the window so the slipstream would blow away the ashes. They seem pretty free with goodies, and that makes up a lot of ground for the B.O., but they're not really all there when you bone them. Their heads are off in Middle Earth or someplace. It's weird. This sounded like a problem I wouldn't mind trying to overcome. Shitty music, too. I don't know how they could listen to it if it wasn't for the pills and the reefer. Doesn't ever seem to end or go anywhere in the middle. Holy Jesus, I hate that music of theirs. Speaking of, let's have something else. Manning the 8-track player was another duty of mine. Maddox made tapes of his albums at home, and he never got tired of listening to anything, just eager to hear the next one. Nothing but wall-to-wall -wall twang and double-time stomp and crazy yelping vocals like the singer was ready to jump through the speakers. 
Give Maddox enough Charlie Feathers and Dwayne Eddy and Link Ray, and he'd run out of gas before he ever ran on a road he wanted to get down. We weren't done for the day yet, though. Maddox hated frat boys most of all, but not so much he wouldn't sell to them, too. Closer to campus, he cruised a stretch of main drag with a lot of cheap restaurants and cheaper bars, then whipped into an alley and met a guy who looked like he was waiting for us. Even if I didn't recognize him, and Maddox didn't either. Preppy-looking Sigma Chi, not a hair out of place, and creases on his slacks sharp enough to cut the hair. Nice wheels, the guy said, except I couldn't tell if he really meant that or not. Still from the 20th century, right? 59, you motherfucker. Maddox looked him up and down. I don't know you. Where's Scott? I'm Heath. Scott has his necktie hanging from the doorknob to our room, which means he's having more fun right now than all three of us put together. Heath dropped down for a look inside over at me, I guess to make sure I wasn't having extra fun. He stared too long, like I knew he would, with a hoo-wee expression blooming across his face. Hey, kid, what time are you supposed to be back at the circus? I want to catch your act. Eight o'clock. I told him. But stick around. It's n-n-n. I hung stuck on the N, the way I sometimes still did. But sliding through it was less a giveaway than grinding at it like an engine that wouldn't start. Not just the eyes. If you're lucky, I'll bite the head off a chicken, too. Motherfucker was right. Maddox drummed his fingers on the top on his door. A galloping sound. You bring Scott's money with you, or was this a wasted trip for me? Heath slipped it from his pocket and handed it over. Maddox let the baggie of little green footballs slip from his fingers to the alley with a, Oops, sorry. When Heath bent over to pick it up, Maddox levered the door open and banged it into his head. As the frat boy tottered backward, holding the top of his skull, Maddox slid out after him. Six lanky feet of gristle and bone with a pompadour. That was Maddox. When his little brother Hazel and I were still kids, I used to think Maddox was the coolest guy on earth. And I guess he was still up there in my estimation. But now it was more that I admired him for sticking to his guns. He was the last greaser in a world of hippies. Outnumbered ten thousand to one by bell-bottoms. He wore peg jeans so tight that even if someone got in a lucky punch and knocked him out, the jeans might still have kept him standing. I never knew how he could even move in them, let alone stash a bicycle chain in his back pocket. But he could, and did. He whipped the chain out and around and up from below into Heath's balls. It got the expected reaction. I got a bigger chain in the truck. Just right to fit round your ankles so I can drag you up and down this alley a few times and then we'll see who's ready for the circus. I'll make a lizard man out of you before sundown. You'll look so scaly. He grabbed onto an ear and dragged Heath over and slammed his head on top of the door. Or you could apologize. It's your choice. Heath burbled and sputtered, but squeaked it out all right. Maddox peeked in across at me. Does that cover it for you, Wyatt? That'll do. Thanks. 
Maddox yanked him away and pushed him aside. Skull, balls, and now his ear, Heath needed a third hand just to cover all the hurt. Have a good weekend, Maddox told him. And tell Scott I said for him to run his own errands from now on. He sends you again, I'll massacre you both faster than sitting bull on Custer. We were a couple blocks away, and he was in a happy mood again when he asked if I was okay for a detour before we got something to eat, and I asked where. I got a line on some magic mushrooms. A little heavy on the magic, maybe. I thought he'd been lying just to shut the hippie up, or string him along since I already knew good and well that a couple nights ago, which is when Maddox said he'd learned about the shrooms, He'd been spending a night in jail for drag racing out on Route 44. Maddox didn't see a contradiction. Where do you think it was I got that line on him in the first place? Oh, okay. I guess that makes sense. The trick to a successful night in the hoose guy was to keep the idiots talking while you don't give up anything. He made this sound like a pearl of wisdom I should hang on to for future reference. I supposed if I kept hanging around with Maddox, sooner or later I'd need it. Didn't many people want me hanging around with him, but Maddox was always cool with it. Now more than ever. His brother Hazel was the first friend I ever had. The two of us going back so long I don't even remember meeting him. Hazel and I were tight before he knew better, but he was supposed to make fun of the same things about me that everybody else did. But by the time they tried to set him straight, it didn't matter to him. Hazel took my crummiest years and made them better. Until he drew a bad number in the draft and got shipped over to Vietnam. So, until he got back, I guess to Maddox I was the next best thing to having his kid brother around. I didn't care what he did or what all mischief he got up to. Maddox stuck up for me and there'd never been a line of people waiting to do that. From way back, I had the lazy eye and the stutter, and because of the eye, I could be clumsy. In school, most everybody treated me like it was catching, and they were the nice ones. With the others, my spot in the pecking order was as one of the main tackling dummies for pecking practice. The day isn't complete until you put the retard in his place. I mostly got over the stutter, but the eye still did its own thing. By then, though, the damage was done, and never going to get better. I could wear a big pair of Ray-Bans like Maddox's and keep my mouth shut, and the past was all anybody else was ever going to see or hear. As we tooled back down to our side of the tracks, he told me the story of the other night, how after the cops had shut down him and Hunter Sykes doing their snake and mongoose routine out on 44, he'd been cooling his heels in his cell for a couple hours when they brought in a sad, jabbering case of humanity starting to come down off what sounded like a pretty bonkers high and deposited him in the next cell. Jail's just like study hall, Maddox told me. Only your neighbors got better stories. The guy had gobbled a few mushrooms earlier, and by half-past nine, the cops had been called to come scoop him off the floor of the Voodoo Mama Lounge. He'd taken up permanent residence down there, but not like your average passed-out drunk. No. He was busily engaged in being an active weirdo, pressed out as flat on the wood as he could get, 
heaving and humping and splorching along through the night swamp of spilled drinks, trying to climb up people's legs and telling anybody who'd listen, I'm the blob! I'm the blob! Johnny Law assumed he was hopped up on goofballs and let it go at that, but I got the straight skinny out of him. It was homegrown he was on. Was he the one who grew it? Maddox shook his head. No, he just helped himself. He drove us to where the southernmost edge of town petered out toward the river bottoms. The air always felt wetter and heavier down here than anywhere else around and smelled like mud. Two minutes in, you couldn't help but break an extra sweat to flush the mucky feel back out of your skin. He pulled us up to a peeling bungalow set in a cluster of old trees that looked like they'd been gagging on the air for the past two hundred years. This is where he said he got the mushrooms. Maddox shut down the engine. You don't know Sheena Halliday, the waitress at the Voodoo? How would I? I'm not old enough to go in there yet, you know that. Maddox sighed. I gotta get you a fake ID. It's all there is to it. He leaned on the horn to announce himself. Then we got out and weren't three steps away from the car when what had to be Sheena barged out through the bungalow's front door. She was the realest unreal thing I had ever seen. In a leopard print skirt and high heels and a busy lime green top. Hair as red as anger piling around onto the shoulder. If they all dressed like that at the Voodoo Mama Lounge, I couldn't get that fake ID fast enough. I was hoping to talk some business, Maddox said. Could you pick a less terrible time? My shift starts in 30. How about Eric? Is he here? She hesitated just enough for the silence to catch my ear the wrong way. Eric's not seen company right now. Maddox must have noticed it too. He was seeing company a couple days ago for no good reason at all, it sounded like. At least I got a reason. Who? Who was here? She looked suspicious now. They call him Trenchfoot Tommy. You know who I mean. Oh, God. He was here? Was this before they hauled this loser ass in? Right. He said he came over in the afternoon to play something he called Booper Balls. Maddox wasn't the type to go uncomfortable and shuffle his feet, but now he did. Um, don't know what that meant and I didn't want to ask. Sheena nodded like she knew anyway and didn't like any of it. Pong, it's this stupid new game that connects to the TV, like ping pong but on a screen. It makes a boop sound. Thumb for about two minutes unless you're brain dead. Maddox and Sheena looked at each other for a second. Then they both just nodded. Yep. Tommy. What else did he tell you? Maddox gave me a tap on the elbow and leaned in close enough to mutter, You flashed some greenbacks. So I held up a shy fistful of everything we'd collected from the hippies and frat boys. There was more what he implied, that there might be an opportunity here for some mutual benefit. Supply and demand and all. Maddox poked me to raise my hand a little higher. I figure you have a sweet little crop of something or other growing out back. This is a good place for it. I could always swing back by when you're not here, but I don't want to be that way. 
I may be a dirtbag, but ain't no thief. Eyeing the cash, Sheena gave her head a big dramatic toss and whirled around with an impatient wave for us to follow. Then get yourselves inside, you idiots. You could see the bluish glow of the TV at the windows, and in the living room it was the only light at all. Assuming you didn't count the big purple lava lamp doing its slow motion churning along one wall and a table next to a bong. The log stretched out on the couch facing the big console TV must have been Eric. There he is. You can get much of a rise out of him, she said. Maddox stepped up to say hello, then jumped straight back with the loudest, Holy Jesus! I ever heard leave him. Sheena stood with her arms crossed. There's your sweet little crop of something or other. You still want to talk business? I couldn't see around Maddox yet and wasn't sure I wanted to, but then he got brave again and crept a little closer. Just lays around like that all day and night, 24-7 just about. Been weeks since he's come to bed. Maddox looked up. Let me be the first to say that is a crying shame. Sheena snorted a cute little laugh. No, you're not the first. Not yet it isn't. If you want to know the truth, she dropped her voice to a whisper. I kind of like him better this way. Maddox glanced over his shoulder at me, still hanging back near the door. Get your bony butt up here, Wyatt. I bet you pay closer attention in science class than I ever did. Sheena looked at me with camaraderie and my heart melted down into my shoes. That's a low bar, she hitched her thumb at Maddox. He never showed his face in science class at all. Maddox put his hand on my shoulder and steered me the rest of the way toward the couch. Well, what do you think? What did I think? What was I supposed to think? I think I would have rather been back in the Dodge, topping a hundred miles per hour with the speakers thumping Dwayne Eddy so hard they were about to tear themselves off the rear deck. But no. Instead, he had me looking down at a long, skinny guy, stretched out watching I was a teenage werewolf on TV with glazed eyes and mushrooms growing from his skin. They were a blue-gray color, speckled with purple spots. Big, fat ones popping from his neck and down his chest and belly, between the sides of his open shirt, and a bunch more little ones across his forehead like a fresh outbreak of zits. He had a few more on his cheeks, but not so many they got in the way of his eyes. I didn't want to know what things looked like under the rest of his clothes. Maddox leaned in close to my ear. No, that's not normal, right? What are you asking me for? I'm not the one who works in the pharmacy. I looked over at the movie on TV, at the werewolf in a varsity letter jacket. Yeah, people bug me too, Tony. Maybe it's normal for him. It started last week, Sheena said. I came out here one morning ready to get coffee going and he was like this. No doctors? No trip to the emergency room? He said he was feeling fine. Look, he hasn't worked in almost a year. I hardly noticed the difference. I don't think he does either. She jabbed at the TV screen. I bet he's watched this three times the past month alone. They're on the same spook shows over and over, and every time one comes on again, you'd think it was the first he's so fixated. 
Maddox slept right up between the couch and the coffee table. He clicked open his switchblade, then scraped at one of the mushrooms on Eric's chest. After a moment of working it, it popped free and tumbled to the cushion next to some Cheetos. He speared it with the tip of the knife and held it up for inspection. Eric's eyes finally left the TV and tracked us. Then he broke into a hazy smile. If he wondered who I was, he didn't show it. Hey, man. When did you guys get here? A few minutes ago, though. Maddox held the mushroom out and down to make sure Eric saw it. Now, this may be a delicate question, but y'all know about these, right? Eric processed things slowly, but it all got through eventually. Eh, sure. Kind of weird, but, you know, ain't no big deal. So, this don't hurt? I'm being honest, I, I don't even remember they're there half the time. Maddox popped off another one. How about now? Eric only giggled. Hey, that tickles. So, you're not... Worried about this, huh? Eric just shrugged. Well, I figure it's just how sweat now. Are these the only ones there are? Or... Oh, no. They keep coming. I broke some off and put a couple bags of them in the icebox the other day. Good man. Sorry to interrupt, Maddox said, then stepped back and turned to Sheena again. Honestly, I don't see as there's a problem either. You got the best of both worlds here, you know? If you'd like for him to start earning again, I don't think he has to do a thing different than what he is now. Maddox held up the shroom on the knife point again. There should be a solid market for these. If Trenchfoot Tommy's reaction was anything to judge by. Sheena only just now got it. You're telling me that's what wigged him out the other night? She looked like she was about to gag. You'd be providing a valuable commodity. Look at it that way. A lot of them dope fiends and hopheads, what they put inside them, nobody even knows where it comes from. Or if it's purely what it's supposed to be. With this, at least we know. Sheena stood tapping her toe against the floor while looking up at the ceiling. Why can't people just get drunk anymore? Drunk sleeve tips! Then she looked us both in the eye. Okay, if you can sell them, you're welcome to them. Just keep them from getting anywhere near the voodoo again, or somebody's balls are getting cut off. I laughed until she showed us the scissors. Next day, Maddox made some calls that made some hippies happy. Then we made the run back up to the north side and met in the park to make them even happier. The one who'd asked about mushrooms the day before had brought friends, and they'd all brought money. So I figured I was happy too and just didn't know it. One of them, so hairy there wasn't much of his actual face to see, held his baggie to the sky and gave it a good eyeballing. Oh man, they're pretty, but... These don't look anything like psilocybin mushrooms. Maddox held out his hand for cash or return. That's part of the magic, Sasquatch. You want them or not? Of course he wanted them. They all wanted them. 
Once the transactions were concluded, Maddox called over their ringleader with the droopy mustache. Were you guys planning on sticking around here in the park while you take them? Commune with nature, that kind of thing? That is what you do, isn't it? He grinned like he had never heard a better idea. That's our bag, man. Then you live long and prosper. Or whatever else it is that you do. We watched as they trailed away from the fountain and off among the trees. Then Maddox fired up the Dodge and found another spot to park, close enough to still keep an eye on them, but far enough away we didn't have to hear the clash of acoustic guitars and bongos. Are you worried the mushrooms aren't any good? I asked. Is that it? He unrolled his pack of cigarettes from the sleeve of his t-shirt and lit up a fresh one. These walking stink bombs will get high off him no matter what. But I've got a feeling there's something to them. I just want to put out a test batch, see what it is. I held up one of the remaining baggies to do some eyeballing of my own. How do you think they work? Science class or not, I can't even guess. Now that I've had time to think about it... Well, back at Sheena and Eric's, you saw the bomb? Guaranteed there's a lot more there you didn't see. I think he's hit it all so hard and for so long that it's built up inside him. And now, it's coming back out of him however it can. So it's just as well he's not boning Sheena these days. Can you imagine her knocked up from him now? That's one baby you'd be doing good to pop out with nothing worse than two heads. Which made me wonder anew. I never blamed my parents for the lazy eye and the stutter. But then, how much did I know about their habits before they had me? It wasn't like I'd never caught them in lies before. Maybe all that clean, virtuous living they yapped about at me was more of the same. And I could not take my eyes off the shrooms. I hadn't even eaten one, yet they still seemed to pulsate and dance. Even an inexperienced dork like me knew that when it came to weed dealers and pill pushers, you had to be a mighty stupid one to get high on your own supply but the longer we sat and I looked at these, the easier it got for me to forget about their growing medium because they looked like most any other normal dirt-grown mushroom, only prettier, and to wonder what it would feel like. Just a few. For just a while. Maddox snapped his fingers in front of my eyes. You best not be thinking what it looks like you're thinking. You're not tempted? Not even a little bit? You pick your poison, and that's not mine. If you're gonna scrape me off the voodoo mama lounge's floor, let it be because I'm puking on someone's shoes, and not because I'm trying to eat them. Then he sighed and dialed it down. I used to not mind a puffer reefer every now and then. But the hippies stole it away from the jazz cats. Just doesn't have the same appeal anymore. The only thing I'll tolerate for myself is speed. And that's mainly because there's times you need to fit 36 hours into a 24-hour day. The rest of it is 
There was a heritage to it. He reached down to give the eight-track player a gentle pat. All this righteous musicality I'm honored to introduce you to, most of what you're listening to is the pure headlong drive-it-over-a-cliff sound of Benzedrine in action. No joke. I didn't know things were like that back then. Oh, you just got yourself a watered-down view of history. Fuck American graffiti. Fuck Greece. And fuck Happy Days twice. He flicked his butt out the window and fired up a fresh smoke. You think Elvis got his break at Sun Studios because the guys there were touched by the fact he wanted to record a gospel song for his mama? Like hell they were. Nobody took him seriously until he started bringing in bottles of mama's diet pills. Then he seemed like somebody worth keeping around. Maddox shook his head with great sadness. You seen him lately? Should have just stuck with the speed. So we sat and whiled away the afternoon, and every so often we'd take a stroll and watch the hippies frolic among the trees. So far, so good. A little later, as evening settled over us, that's when most of them begin to run around looking a lot more agitated, and snarl and howl and fight each other. And... As far as Maddox was concerned, this was a million times better. I thought crazed hippies were just something from the movies, like in I Drink Your Blood, the double featured with I Eat Your Skin at the drive-in theater a few years earlier, which I only got to see because the Dodge Coronet had such a big trunk that it could have fit four of Hazel and me when Maddox snuck us in with room left over for a giant bag of popcorn. But those were Satan-worshipping hippies who got rabies from infected meat pies. I would really have liked for that to be true, but it didn't match up with how I'd seen the real ones out in the wild. They seemed pretty docile all around. So curiosity got the better of me. Two plus two equals what here exactly? Eric had been watching a lot of I Was a Teenage Werewolf, and next thing you know, we had a pack of shroom-gobbling hippies baying at the moon. But what about Trenchfoot Tommy, oozing around the voodoo lounge's floor, trying to engulf people from the angles up, calling out how he was the blob? Suppose he wasn't just any blob? Suppose he thought he was the blob? I opened up the TV guide for earlier in the week before Mom could pitch it out and started flipping through the pages, and there it was. The Blob, 1958. Steve McQueen. Annetta Corsat. A shapeless creature from another world lands on Earth and gets bigger with every meal. Open and shut, Your Honor. I brought my findings to Maddox, showing him right there in the TV guide, and told him how it may not have been the reefer and who knows what else coming back out of Eric. Or, at least not exclusively. The real mojo was in the movies. I knew that much from growing up with them. My best place to go to get lost. They were my rock to hang on to, and the strength to do it. Where Maddox had his way-back music, I had movies. Sometimes they were all that got me from one day to the next, or through the weekend before the start of the new school week. 
When you are the resident human pinata, there's nothing a TV or theater screen can show you that's more horrifying than the idea of another Monday morning. I'll take a werewolf or a rabid hippie or a flesh-eating zombie any day before I ever take a second-string football player looking to entertain his buddies for the next five minutes. Nobody has to convince me of the power of movies. So it seemed like a sound theory to me. Eric lying back on that sofa for the best part of a year, soaking in the TV's blue glow 24-7. And the area where they lived was dank anyway. The air probably lousy with spores. Something just bound to mix and mutate. That's interesting. Was about all Maddox had to say about it. You could be on to something. I wasn't sure how I expected him to react. I was just thrilled he took it seriously. I wonder what else he's been watching lately. Maddox grinned, like he'd been watching too many movies himself. Nothing but devils and rogues. You want to find out? Give everybody up there one last blowout for the weekend? You don't think they've had enough for this one? As I see it, it'd be doing them a favor. Did you hear them last night? They sounded more alive in one night than I have seen them in two years. They need more of that, don't you think? Life is more than rainbows and tree-hugging. When we cruised back down to Eric and Sheena's, she wasn't any happier to see us this time that she'd been the first, not until I handed over their cut of the sails. She was out of her voodoo garb now, in cut-off jean shorts and a halter top, and when she gave me a bouncy hug, there wasn't anything I wouldn't have done for her short of murder. And that was still on the table. And people are actually buying this? She hadn't yet moved beyond disbelief. They really are getting high off this? You on shift tonight? Maddox asked. No, thank God. Then come with us. See for yourself. She was right on the verge of saying no. I could tell. She had seen all of it she wanted to the other night when Trenchfoot Tommy blobbed out on the floor. But then she looked around, caught between the purple light of the lava lamp and the blue TV glow of the creature from the Black Lagoon, and something else came over her. Like she maybe started to get the idea that automatically saying no to too many weird things was how she'd landed here, in a neighborhood that smelled of mildew, with a boyfriend so inert that mushrooms were growing on him. If the weird is going to take over your life anyway, you might as well go out and find it first, so you have some control over the situation. You know, I think I will, she said. Ten minutes of harvesting, and we were back on the road. I learned something new that day. If you have half-price sale, even people who wouldn't normally buy something like magic mushrooms get to thinking... Well, why not? Surely the hippies didn't need convincing. Quite a few of the vegetarians even mentioned that the previous batch had given them a new appreciation for meat. Next, after we found the Sigma Chi house and sought out Heath from the other day, with Maddox claiming to be bringing a peace offering, 
We got to be pretty popular along Fraternity Row, too. They wouldn't want to know us tomorrow, but today we were gold. After that, it was just a matter of going to the park and waiting for the show to begin. As the sun started to dip low, it was like a drive-in movie come to life around us. The biggest monster mash ever. We heard it before we saw anything, with the howls of more born-again werewolves rising in the distance. After that, it was all moms grabbing their kids off the swings, boyfriends and girlfriends running for cover. As the park began to fill up and be overrun, you could chart Eric's viewing habits and tell who'd ingested what by the way they moved. The werewolves were the most agitated and erratic, and the only ones who went up into the trees after the squirrels. The vampires skulked and tried to bite. The Frankenstein monsters blundered along with a low frustration tolerance, slamming into things and knocking them over. The mummies, they more or less just plotted. Then there were the ones who scurried around on all contorted fours, like giant ants, and worked together in teams to go after their quarry. They'd scuttle up on the roofs of cars and lift their heads for a better overview. You could almost see antennae twitch before they scampered on their way again. This may be getting out of hand, Sheena said. Oh, in this dead-ass town? Maddox said. Something needs to. After a time, he kept the dodge in gear and kept us on the move, motoring from one vantage point to the next as the hubbub became a rolling wave through town. Any six men could overturn a car, I remembered one of the characters telling another in Night of the Living Dead. And where zombies were concerned, that may have been true. But seeing our human ants scale the sides of buildings was a display of strength on an altogether different level. When the Greeks showed up, though, that's when it all went to hell in a hurry. A sweaty tide of screaming frat boys and fire sweeping in from the opposite direction. It only made sense in hindsight. If you're going to have monsters on the loose sooner or later, you're going to have a mob. What? are they carrying? Sheena asked. Where did they get all of those in such a hurry? In my whole life, I'd never seen Maddox mortified. Not until now. Tiki torches, he said. Just leave it to these smug assholes to get everything wrong. They're pretty much universal laws. Monsters run from fire. And mobs once they're stoked, aren't going to be satisfied until they burn something. Really, though, did they have to start by torching the Piggly Wiggly? Well, I guess they did. I tend to think that, under threat and under the influence, a herd of otherwise harmless hopheads and shroom gobblers are going to take shelter where they instinctively feel safest. And the place with the most munchies was it. Once the smoke started to billow, they scattered, and so did the loud-mouthed guys with torches in pursuit. One fire became four, turned into eight, and within half an hour the night was full of red lights and sirens and you couldn't see the moon for all the smoke. And three blocks of the campus adjacent downtown was either burning or had its front window smashed in. And the one thing definitely looked to be true. Any six men could overturn a car. 
but not ours. Anytime anyone got too close, Maddox jumped out, whirling the bicycle chain to drive them away. Which we should have done for real, but the three of us felt like we had an obligation to see it through. To bear witness to this chaos we had set in motion as it whirled toward its blazing zenith. The downtown bell tower clock was out of the danger zone, and by the time it bonged midnight, we were scuffing and scraping along a sidewalk full of ash and grit, taking it all in, while the fire crews kept busy hosing things down a block ahead of us. You know, I never meant for this deal and thing to be permanent, Maddox said. I always told you as soon as I get my grub staked together, it's shit through a goose time for me. I'll be so gone, daddy gone. This was true. He'd been talking about his grub steak for years. Either it had to be sizable enough by now to get him anywhere he wanted, or it was all talk and no cash. Either way, this time he meant it for real. Tell me you got room for three, Sheena said. You've seen that beast I drive? I got room for four if it comes to it. A couple minutes later, he said he had an idea and slipped through the smashed glass storefront for Featherstone TV and appliance. Another couple minutes and he was out again, lugging a portable television, a floor demo plucked off a shelf. Runs on batteries, he said. We can use that. I didn't move. Maddox may have been a dirtbag, and now maybe an arsonist by proxy, but he did have standards. The stutter was coming on, the way it still did when things mattered most. So I battled through until I got it out. I th 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 you weren't a th th thief. First mortified, now sheepish. Tonight was full of firsts. You're right. Hold on to this, he said and stuck the TV in my hands while he dug in his pocket for a wad of cash and ducked back inside. When the sun rose on the north side of town, they were still raking through the ashes when the three of us Southsiders finished packing. Sometimes all it takes is a whisper in your ear to tell you it's time to move on, that your future lies down a road you won't recognize until you're on it. Other times it takes a fire under your ass, Maybe we'd all three been hearing the whisper for a while and ignored it until the heat came. We picked up Sheena last because the logistics made sense that way. Then we stood around outside under the sky and the wet, heavy trees. The world so quiet. We could hear the rushing of the brown river water a block away. I never smell mud and wood rot again or feel some drunk's hand trying to get up my skirt. It will be too soon, Sheena said. They got in the car while Maddox and I hung back to wrap things up out here. We looked down into the trunk. Maddox had rigged the portable TV to an aerial on the car, and we had lots of batteries, so it seemed like the arrangement would do for now. You hear about this new thing they're coming up with in Japan? He said. It's called a VCR. Video cassette recorder. Anything you want to see anytime, anywhere, will be on tape. You just load it in. 
press play. Wow, he'll like that. The existence of such ingenuity made me smile. Go on, get the motor started. I'll finish up. If, back in our drive-in sneaking days, the Dodge's trunk could have held four of Hazel and me, it meant Eric had all the room he could ever need. I reached up and took hold of the trunk lid. Do you need anything else before we get going? I asked him. He didn't answer. He didn't even look at me. Just smiled, a slow, hazy smile, like he'd heard me from somewhere down by the river. He was good. He had everything he needed. Just before I shut the lid on him and the blue glow, I looked around to make sure nobody was watching, then popped a couple growths as big as draw knobs off his forehead and gobbled them down quick as I could. We were somewhere around the county line on the edge of tomorrow when the shrooms began to take hold. Link Ray was tearing it up on the speakers, and Maddox was drumming on the steering wheel, and Sheena's hair was streaming in the wind. And I couldn't believe how my hips were wanting to move. Well, how about that, Eric? Somewhere into the mix, he'd thrown an Elvis movie or two. And the road ahead may have been winding. But for a kid with a lazy eye, I was seeing straighter than ever. You've been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane, produced by Jason Hill, and co-produced by Felipe Ojeda. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork and design elements generously produced by Matthew Terrian. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by the support of listeners like you. And the most important thing you can do to ensure that these amazing interviews keep coming is to simply get the word out. You can find us on Facebook by searching Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts, Instagram at, all one word, Spill Your Guts underscore podcast, and Twitter at Spill Your Guts underscore one, as in the number one. Post, comment, share, like, but don't forget that good old-fashioned word of mouth still goes a long way. The best way you can support what we do is to just tell people about us. Friends, family, co-workers, whomever. Anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for guts. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>